is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Between the Korean and the Vietnam Wars, U.S. Navy Captain Royce Williams flew over 220 missions. The following story was classified as top secret because if the word got out that the Russians were now engaging our troops in the Korean War, World War III could have easily broken out. For more than 50 years, Captain Williams didn't tell a soul, not even his wife. Nobody knew what this 27-year-old South Dakotan did that day over the skies of Korea until now. Yes, um, born more or less to the Foss clan of South Dakota, which is rather famous. My mother was one of 13. Um, but my dad, who was a mail carrier on motorcycle, he was in World War One, and um, then settled near where he was born in South Dakota, a town called Wilmot. Um, very patriotic upbringing. He was uh, large in the local legion, commander of the uh, unit at times, and. Uh, I grew up uh, engaged in the community. Uh, I took on scouting as a serious matter and uh, was their community's first Eagle Scout. But um, I turned out to be an awfully good farmer. And uh, though my brother and sisters pretty much worked for my dad in the grocery business, I worked for a lot of family, it was a lot of uncles <laughs> and their farms. And then when I moved to Minnesota, uh, I was sort of uh, on demand in farming. And uh, I worked for my uncle uh, at a resort. Mother didn't worry much about me. She came out one time because we weren't back as expected. And she found out that we had been in the trestle of a uh, railroad track, uh, and the train was coming, and we ducked down below the uh, rails and uh, rode underneath in the wood uh, supporting the, the, the bridge. And uh, we were safe, but uh, mothers don't like those sort of things. I was full-time engaged and uh, very athletic. I uh, played in all the sports and lettered in all of them. And I was taller then. <laughs> I've lost five and a half inches with the compression of my uh, back. But that is manageable and every life's good. I uh, had my first flight when I was four years old and a uh, Ford Tri-Motor out of a pasture in South Dakota along with my uh, grandma, her first flight too, and she was 80. And uh, interested in aviation from that time on. My brother likewise. And uh, when I was about uh, seven or eight, two years older, we made a pact. The famous aviators in those days were Lindy Lindbergh and Roscoe Turner. Well, his name is Lim. If I'd call him Lindy, he'd call me Roscoe. 
Later on, when I was uh, assigned uh, duty on the USS Independence, Roscoe Turner came aboard as a VIP and I was his guide. Takes us to World War II. My brother, uh, about two years older than me, and I were roller skating in front of his grocery store and he came out and said, boys, come in and listen to this. And it was FDR on the radio proclaiming the attack on Pearl Harbor. We all got very serious and uh, our thinking thereafter is how we're going to participate. My dad likewise thought he ought to jump in, but they wouldn't take him. But he sent his two sons. Everybody in America was full-time engaged in some way or other in support of their country in World War II. And little kids were saving the foil from gum. <laughs> and in the slightest little thing like shoestrings or whatever, everything was going into a war effort. And that made them special and changed their life. So I was 16 and I joined the local Minnesota Guard. Um, the Guard was called up and I had two cousins in it. They went to Morocco and both were killed. I didn't go because I was 16 and I went up to Camp Ripley for training in northern Minnesota. Uh, let me finish high school, and when I turned 17, I was eligible for naval aviation. And uh, applied and uh, accepted, and uh, sent down to Corpus Christi, Texas. I didn't get any actual combat in World War II. I flew the airplanes, and uh, we were instructed to keep an eye out because we were flying over areas of the ocean where uh, German submarines were operating, but uh, that was pretty much it. My brother finished a little bit ahead of me, chose uh, the Marine Corps for his uh, aviation, uh, was in on the Okinawa combat for our area, and I uh, went through a full career, pretty much the uh, same as I did. He got more carrier landings than most any other Marine I know. And I uh, was in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And I relieved him in his final station on Admiral McCain's staff at Sinkpack in Hawaii, and he retired the next day. Talked to him a couple of days ago. He's almost 97. And you're listening to the voice of Captain Royce Williams, and my goodness, it harkens back to a different day in this country. At 17 years old, graduating from high school, boom, gone to Corpus Christi, hoping to get in on the war. Not old enough to do so. His father tried to get in, couldn't do it. A different time, and a remarkable time in American life and history. And when we come back, the story of Captain Royce Williams continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with our American stories. And let's continue now with Captain Royce Williams in his own words about his own life. I made patrols in uh, 1952. Second uh, tour in South Pacific on the Princeton, we were shadowing with the ship that the Admiral was on. And we were all slated to go around the world. We hit a typhoon off Guam and one squadron lost eight airplanes on one flight. And we were sent back to the States and they continued on the around the world cruise. Well, I got selected for regular Navy and having only high school background, I was uh, sent to the University of Minnesota for 18 months to get a two-year degree. I got a four-year degree and still had another quarter do me, so they sent me to postgraduate school. And um, coming out of there, the Korean War was underway and I went to a fighter squadron out of Miramar in uh, the fall of 52. And uh, I was flying an F9F5, which was uh, the new model of the Panther. And our mission was primarily close air support and reconnaissance where targets were trains, train tracks, trucks, bridges, tunnels. And we were not getting to some of the prime targets with manufacturing far to the north. So late November, Task Force 77 and others uh, decided to put together a task force of three carriers and uh, associated ships, probably n numbering 20 some. And uh, in the press of night, we uh, headed on up off Changin, which is one of the major northern cities of uh, North Korea. And in that morning, I was on the first combat flight that uh, attacked Horyong. Well, when I came back from that flight, I was told that uh, take a quick snack and come back, you're on the combat air patrol next. So I uh, thought it was going to be not too exciting, but uh, we took off uh, in a snowstorm, blizzard, 500 feet ceiling, formed as a uh, division of aircraft under the clouds, climbed through to on top, which was 12,000 feet. Well, while we were in the clouds, we got a message from our controller in the combat information center saying that there were bogies, unidentified aircraft, inbound, headed toward the task force, 80-some miles north of us. So when we arrived on top of the clouds, I could see to the north contrails. They were very high. Uh, about that time, the flight lead had a light indicating he had uh, a warning regarding his fuel pump. 
and he was instructed to detach with his wingman and remain over the task force. And I proceeded with my wingman uh, instructed to intercept. There were seven contrails, and as they came over us, I could see that they were MiG-15s. I didn't know what country, I assumed probably Russia because we weren't very far from their, their territory. But as assigned, I uh, pursued them climbing in their direction. As they turned, they headed back, and in my assumption, I thought they were going home. But when I got to 26,000 feet, they split into a group of four airplanes going to the right and three to the left and descending. And when they dropped below the contrail level, I couldn't see them anymore and uh, reported that to Combat Information Center on the Oriskany. And they had also lost contact with them but being a smaller target. Their radar no longer picked them up. So we didn't know where they were or what they were doing, so I was instructed to re turn around and come back and establish a barricade at 26,000 feet uh, between the last contact of the MiGs and the task force. Well, it was while in that turn, the four that turned off to the right came in and met me from a 10 o'clock position relative to the clock in my, where I was flying, and they were all shooting. So I didn't pick them up until they were thought they were in range, and I turned hard into them, and as they passed by, uh, I was within range and uh, tracking their number four airplane, the one that was closest to me and the farthest behind the lead, and fired a short burst, and uh, he dropped out of formation. I reported to the information center that uh, I had just uh, thought I'd just hit one, and they said, do not engage. And I said, hey, we are engaged. They said, go get them. The three remaining pulled up hard and showed me how classy an airplane they were flying that it could uh, really outmaneuver, high climb and zoom to about 2,000 feet above me. And they had split to where the guy who just lost his wingman was coming in and I was going to track him, but uh, he was in the sun and I kind of lost him and I saw the other two had already turned into me coming back. So I changed my aim point and was tracking the lead and he fired at me and uh, I thought he was a little out of range but he was coming in fast. So I fired and uh, I may have hit him because he turned away and uh, then his wingman came in and I changed my point of aim onto him and he was firing away and I was shooting at him at a rather long burst and then he quit but he continued flying toward me and flew directly underneath me. And I would assume that he was probably hit, the pilot. Uh, and while this was happening, the other three came in from the other direction. So depending on what happened to these that I hit or didn't hit, uh, I may be up there with six 
Uh, my wingman wasn't with me anymore because when I hit the first guy and he dropped out, uh, my wingman trailed him, uh, tracked him on down to where thought he was going in the ocean. and I don't know what he did from that time on, but I didn't see him again. Well, I was now mightily engaged. These guys were no longer formation. They were uh, singles operating as a single fighter trying to shoot me down. And uh, I wasn't trying to do anything fancy. I was countering their attacks. And then uh, as they pulled off, they would pull abruptly up so high uh, that I couldn't uh, track them anymore. They weren't a target. They were just getting positioned to come back in and let the next guy have his turn. Well, one time, a guy uh, failed to do that pull-up and he kind of slid in front of me. And while he was in close, I fired and hit him and uh, it was almost as though he stopped and his airplane pieces were coming off him and I had to turn abruptly to avoid running into him. Uh, and beyond that I'm doing the same thing, they're making their runs and I'm countering. Uh, so this uh, lasted about a half hour. And you've been listening to Captain Royce Williams in his own words, which we love to do here on this show. And by the way, this is not a video game, and it's not a movie. This was Captain Royce Williams' real-life story, and he was in combat doing this thing, this hard thing. And by the way, to give you a context, this was the Korean War. 54,000 people, 54,000 of our fighters died in combat in the Korean War, 58,000 in the Vietnam War, World War I was 116,000, World War II, 405,000, and the most ghastly figure of them all, the American Civil War, 750,000 dead. When we come back, we're going to continue with the remarkable story of Captain Royce Williams, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and the story of Captain Royce Williams. Let's pick up where we last left off. So this uh, lasted about a half hour. And uh, toward the end of this thing, I was on the tail of one of them. And uh, he stopped maneuvering and, and was slowing down and, and losing altitude and I was out of ammunition. So I turned around and I saw a Meg was coming in on my tail and I turned real hard into him. And I would say it was a lucky shot, but uh, he hit me with a 37 millimeter right in the wing butt that exploded in the accessory section of the engine, destroying all of the hydraulics and a lot of the electrical and 
uh, severed the cable to the rudder. The guy settled right in behind me at uh, perfect shooting range. But I had my elevator working and I would jam the stick forward and then I would pull it back and this would be pretty high G zooms and I, I was always at 100% power the whole fight. And so I had uh, pretty good control for this maneuver that uh, really saved my life. And I dove into the clouds and lost sight of him and so I knew I was in bad shape and I thought about ejecting. But this is winter time and the ocean is extremely cold and though I'm wearing an immersion suit, it probably would have extended my survival to maybe 20 minutes. And there was no time for me to um, be rescued. So that would have been it. My commanding officer uh, of the squadron had taken off and uh, with a, a division four airplanes to go up and relieve me. On takeoff he saw me coming into the task force area under the clouds and being shot at by the destroyers. They didn't know who I was and they were at general quarters ready to fight and cleared to shoot if uh, they had an unidentified and they were concerned, so they shot. And he uh, called off the dog saying he's friendly. I was uh, talking to a group of people in Pensacola, the first time I ever talked about this at all, many years later. And one of the gentlemen afterwards came back and said, I was one of the guys shooting at you. I was on a destroyer and he said, I'm sorry. I said, you didn't hit me. Don't worry. <laughs> I saved uh, the adrenaline for after my landing, <laughs> and then I did get a flush of that uh, once I realized what I'd been through. The uh, plane captain, who kind of owned that airplane, got a grease pencil and went around and circled all the perforations and counted 263. So I did meet the captain and he congratulated me for whatever I did and said uh, he thought I had just earned a Navy Cross. I had a meeting with uh, the senior admiral in the Western Pacific who told me that uh, we were covered by the operation of a new capability called NSA and this being their first venture, had a team on the Helena, which was right off the coast of Vladivostok, where the base was located that these bigs came from. And their sensors told them that I got at least three. And uh, I was told that, uh, this is after we got into port uh, in Yokosuka, and told to never tell anybody ever. And so I spent maybe 50 some years or something like that where I never told a soul. They told me there was a lot of surmising by other people and they were concerned about maybe World War III. Uh, going to, something's going to get out of hand. I was told that because we had this new capability of NSA, we didn't want them to know about it. And if I 
were to come out with all this information, that it would be more than I, as a single fighter pilot in there, would actually have gleaned by myself. At some point, I received word that uh, the president-elect was uh, on his way out and had requested to meet with me. And so the president came over to me and then took me by the elbow uh, over to a big overstuffed leather chair, placed me in it with a little shove, sat on the arm, and uh, said, before we get down to business, we ought to have a drink, don't you think? Well, I concurred. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, he says, well, we have bourbon and scotch and water and soda. What do you have? My son John's the bartender. Well, bourbon and water, please. He says, we have awfully good scotch. I said, well, sir, I prefer bourbon and water. And man, we have awfully good scotch. I said, well, sir, I really bourbon and water. Lieutenant, we've got the world's finest scotch. <laughs> Mr. President, I drink bourbon and water. Oh, John, give him a bourbon and water. So we did, and then um, we chatted, and we didn't talk directly anything about the Russians. We talked about uh, his new position as president, and uh, that I, in uh, the there was a career man, and uh, he said that will make me your boss, and uh, will have a lot to do with the equipment you use. And so we sort of discussed fighting equipment and how much better the big happened to be uh, in performance and that sort of thing. Also accompanying him was everybody who was anybody in the command structure in the Korean War. So he'd ask me a question and uh, one of them I wanted to engage so they would talk about it and then he kind of looked at me and then another general would come in and uh, say his piece and then he's and lieutenant what were you going to say and the secretary of defense and the uh, chairman of the joint chiefs of staff uh, omar bradley so i was proud of the company i was in i uh, got other awards and uh, other wars and other holes in my airplane hit by a sam missile uh, one day, barely just knocked off a chunk of my tail. But, uh, so life, life went on and I engaged fully. And uh, life's been good. And life indeed has been good. You've been listening to the voice of Captain Royce Williams, the only American aviator to single-handedly shoot down four Soviet MiGs. And then, well, he had to keep it secret for just about mm, 50 years. And by the way, the first person Captain Williams shared his story with after it was declassified was his bride. And today, Williams' friends at his local American Legion Post 416 in Encinitas, California, are working very hard to get him the Medal of Honor. A special thanks, by the way, to our own Philip Graham for getting this story and for bringing it to you. With over 12,000 American Legion posts across this great country, be sure to stop by one in your neighborhood and thank a vet, or even better, join 
if you or your family members have been vets. You will be supporting all the great things the Legion does, and who knows, you may even get to meet a national hero like Captain Royce Williams. Celebrating Captain Williams, the American Legion, and all of our veterans for their service to this great country, this is Our American Stories. American stories, and from time to time, our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling, so good, so spiritually good, that we must take the time to sit back, close our eyes, and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment. Join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art. Egypt, home of the Great Pyramid, believed to be built around 2500 BC, it was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America, to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas, to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, a dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? <coughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop the poodle from a single mother. And Renee Zellweger. You had me at hello. Hi, this is Jesse Edwards for Our American Stories. And what you just heard is, it's completely true. Uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire. I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles 
that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely, the idea of having just one movie to watch. I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I, I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to, uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years um, and, you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how did you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement in my parents' house into like a video store-looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in, uh, in media and all of us in the group are, are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So um, yeah, over fourteen thousand copies. We we hope to we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and <laughs> go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space. They're, I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. 
So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Uh, why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie? And where did they even come from? The, the Jerry Maguire's was, it was really just the, uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media. I think the, there, there are many, many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So, uh, Purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other um, the other footage that we use for for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now, tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000-plus copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture, um, we are working with a team of uh, engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from <laughs> our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them. Uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important <laughs> for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, we've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them. And the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the Pyramid, we're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's. And uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into, the, into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry McGuire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything that's terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, then they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer. A.K.A. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not?
To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page. For our American stories and Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's <laughs> myself. There's always the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. <laughs> the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is our American stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. <laughs> A lot more of them. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to help perpetuate policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And now it's time for our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story. Jack Marucci is the director of LSU's athletic training, but he's also a dad. My son was, uh, he's about seven, eight years old, Gino, and we used to watch a lot of baseball. I, I didn't play old videos with Pirates, Roberto Clemente, so that became his guy. And he liked Bonds as bad. He saw the black and two-tone wood bat. He goes, Dad, I like that. Man, I want to play with a wood bat. That's different, because wood bats weren't even mentioned back then. You know, now you got wood bat tournaments, and everybody likes the wood bat. So uh, I end up calling all these bat companies. They all had stock bats, none more small enough or short enough. Everybody maybe was an inch off. I needed a 27. And they only stopped at 29 or stopped at 28. So I started looking around, and there were some old bats stored here at LSU. I'm looking at them. And then we had a quarterback, Matt Mock. I started talking to Matt. Matt played for the Cubs for three years. I said, Matt, I'm, I'm thinking about making a bat for my son. I'm going to make one. I'm going to bring it in. Tell me what we need to do to, to make this thing tapered right. So I made the first one and uh, top heavy, you know, I use electrical tape to, <laughs> to do whatever. And I, I carved in, I think that one was the Geno Crusher. So the next one I start making, I got a lot better. That was the Geno Slugger. So he starts getting in Little League, he's using a wood bat. Okay, this is different, but he's, he's one of the best hitters. So everybody on the team goes, well, if he's hitting good with that bat, I want one with my kid's name on it. So we'll form a little company, Marucci Bat Company. So I bought a shed. I bought it from Canada. It's a cedar shed. I told the guy what I wanted because I thought cedar's going to last longer in this weather, the mildew, the, you know, it's not going to rot. I said, I want doors in the front and the back. He goes, why do you want that? I said, have you ever lived in Louisiana? I said, it's like living on the equator. I said, I need airflow. So I put a fan in there and that was my bat shop. And it, you know, that was 2002. Jack went to the trouble of buying a shed when he was just making a few bats for his kid and some little league friends. Because I had to get a lathe, I had to put it somewhere, and I had a carport. So I ended up, after football, I always joke around, I said saving was a little stressful, so it was a nice stress relief to get it away. That's championship coach Nick Saban. So I'd spend nights, and the neighbor would come over and go, what are you doing? 
there's sawdust everywhere. I go, I'm making bats. He goes, you're making bats? He goes, give me a couple. You know, everyone, as soon as they saw it, they go, oh, 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 I want one. But he didn't charge them for it. I wasn't at first. So I started 25 bucks. I mean, the wood cost probably 15. And because uh, money was never a thing, I, I felt bad. I felt bad that I was going to even charge somebody for it. Then I said, well, I better start charging because, you know. Because this is getting a little bit ridiculous? <laughs> well, one day, Jack was going to hang with a friend of his, Eduardo Perez, who just happened to be a major league player. And we're catching up, and I told him what I was doing. He goes, bring me one up. I said, all right. And he gave me a model, which was a common model. Everything was based off of Louisville Slugger models, a C243. I said, all right, I think I can find one in the pile because LSU had some wood bats laying around. I found one that I would hang it on the hanger. I had two hangers, you know, I'd straighten out the, the wire and it would hang right over the lathe. So I'm looking at it and I could, you know, feel it. I would do it by eye and feel. I would cut the bat. I think I made him two. And I mean, what's he gonna do with it? Maybe he's just gonna put it up in his house. So. He meets me in front of the hotel and he, and he pulls out the box and his eyes light up. And he goes, man, he goes, I'm going to use this tonight. I said, what? I said, this thing's going to explode, Eddie. I said, I've seen seven and eight-year-olds swing this. I said, you're going to swing this, this thing? He goes, I'm going to sneak it in because I wasn't licensed. You know, you, there's all these regulations which you find out. And uh, he goes, I tell you what, I want you to come down for batting practice. I said, okay. He gets me down there and... He goes, this bat is unbelievable. Then he introduces me to, to Barry Larkin. He's playing for the Reds. He uh, says, I tell you what, we're playing in Houston. I want you to make me one. <laughs> I said, all right. Then he introduced me to Albert Pujols. One of the best players on the planet. He was very leery. And Eddie talks to him in Spanish. And that was the first bat was ever given to me to, to replicate. So. Me and my son go to Houston, and, and he says, get there early for batting practice. He wants you to bring the bat. So I'm walking in the stadium with a bat. I said, I, I gave it to my son. I go, here, Gina, you take it. He was only, I don't know, nine at the time. And I said, they won't yell at you. I said, I'm not going to bring a bat in the, in the stadium. You technically need Major League Baseball's permission to make bats for its players. So for Jack and his son to come into the stadium like every other fan coming for the game and to deliver their bat to one of the guys that was actually going to play was pretty darn rogue. We walk all the way down. They're taking batting practice. And there's people around in the stands. I don't know what to do. It's the first time you know, I've done this. And um, Larkin kind of sees us. He gives us thumbs up, and everyone behind us is going, oh, that's funny, he recognized, you know. We're in the stands with everybody else, right behind the dugout. They're all trying to get autographs, and there's people everywhere. So the bat boy comes over. We hand the bat over to him. Everyone's going, wow, how's he getting him to sign that bat? They're all going, yeah, how's he getting to sign? We're trying to get all of our, they're kind of getting mad. So the bat boy takes it right over to Larkin. Larkin starts putting on the, they call it a moda stick, the tackiness, and like pine tar it up. And everyone starts going, wait a minute. He's gonna hit with that bat. <laughs> you just brought it to him. He starts taking BP. 
So we're watching the game. His second at bat, he was the first guy to get a hit with it up the middle. Again, he goes, hey, that's big time. And um, that was the first hit. And to me, I said, that was it. I mean, I'm, I, this thing was in my backyard a couple days ago, and this guy's using a Major League Baseball. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous. And when we come back, more of the story of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports. Here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues after these messages. back with our American stories and we return to the story of Jack Marucci, a father whose son asked him to make wooden bats that he could use in his little league and unintentionally these bats found their way into a major league game. Eduardo Perez, I can't say enough good things about He helped the company more than anybody. He was fantastic because he talked to all these players and he's showing them and I'm sending him more bats, and he's sneaking them in the game. He's leaving me voicemails. Man, I hit Alinea against Nomo. And I mean, it was just the excitement of, it was like contraband. You know, we're sending contraband up there. And um, he goes, you're going to get a call from Manny Ramirez. I said, okay. He goes, you know how Manny is. One of only 25 players ever to hit 500 home runs. So I get a call from Manny Ramirez. He goes, I need some bats for the playoff run. You're going to be in the playoffs. You can't use these bats. So I said, well, Manny, we're, we're about to take off. We're about to play Georgia. And so we're getting on a flight, and I'm cutting them off. And I said, let me get back, and I'll cut them. So I spent three nights making bats because one of them I didn't quite like, so I redid it. I made three bats for them. I said, maybe, maybe I'll use them for batting practice or whatever. I don't know. And... Uh, so I put a model number on it. It's called a CB24. So this is 2004 now. And, and I got pretty good by then. The finish, I, I was hand doing everything, putting a nice, I mean, it looked shiny. It looked like furniture. That's what Eduardo Presnell all said. It looks like furniture. Fast forward a couple years ago, I saw Orlando Cabrera on that same team. And why he's significant, I'm watching the game and Orlando Cabrera is using these bats in this playoff game. So I asked him. I never talked to Orlando about it. He used Manny's bats, I said. I said, weren't you afraid you're going to get in trouble? He goes, no. He goes, let me tell you something. I hit like 370 in that series. And those bats, that ball was coming off. So this was two years ago I'm talking to him about that 2004 playoff. And he goes, you know, I remember those bats like it was yesterday. And he goes, I always wanted to know. I didn't know what company it was. I wanted to order more, but never heard of it. And he goes, that model number, that CB. I said, well, let me tell you something. Somebody gave me a tip about five, six months after that series. They were on eBay. I found two of them. I have them in my office. I bought them back. I didn't tell them who I was. I have those two bats that you hit with in the playoffs. Cabrera hits it deep in front. 
So I said, you know what the CD stood for? He goes, no, I said, Curse Buster. I put CD to break the curse. The Curse Buster of the Yankees. The Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918, 86 years ago. Allegedly cursed by their selling of Babe Ruth to the Yankees. All the way back in 1919. The Red Sox were down three games and they came back and they won the World Series. And I have those bats in my office. I told that story to the Hall of Fame. They wanted them. You know, it's just, it's one of those things. You just never know. And um, so Marucci Bats kind of started taking off. Then the next big player would be Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran and we end up having the whole Met team. And all those people in the division saw those bats. Those guys were hitting well. And the Phillies took off with Ryan Howard, won the World Series. Our whole team was covered with our bats. The word of mouth was unstoppable, and especially about the terrifically crazy stories that major leaguers like Carlos Beltran had and shared. At the time, you know, he ordered a half dozen. I always wanted him to order small amounts because I had to cut them at the time. And, and, and then, that, then we got more automated, obviously, but I, I was getting tendonitis. I, I swear to God, I, I got bad. This is the first time I had epicondylitis. I told him, that I, I would tell him that, and I would tell the clubhouse guy, if it's a bad guy, I don't care if he's the best player, but we don't want to do bats for him. We, we were trying to turn down business because the quality of wood, we only have so much. So he orders the bats, we ship them out, and I get a phone call from him. Jack, you... You only sent me five bats, I ordered six. I said, I know. He goes, what do you mean you know? I said, do you understand that I was trying to get you the six bat, I cut like 10 to 12 bats. They weren't the quality I wanted, in silence. He goes, that is unbelievable. So he goes, You're not, you don't make like batting practice bats? No, what do you mean batting practice bats? So being naive and thinking, I'm just gonna give you the best quality. Companies that he was using says, you know, I only could get, I'm not gonna mention companies, but he going to use four to five bats out of the dozen. He thought the other ones were subpar. That's how they did it. Even for the most elite players in the most elite baseball league on the planet, the greatest of the great, it would be like giving Michael Jordan a pair of $30 sandals to play basketball in. If this is how they service the top, how do they service the rest of us. Our bats didn't matter if you were the lowest guy to our pool. It's the same wood. It was always the same. Nothing. There was no variance. And he loved it. So I always told people, you know, we were always chasing the quality. You're not going to chase the dollar. You're not going to chase that money. Chase the quality. The stuff will come. A lot of people flippantly say that they're focused on quality. It's one of those inescapable buzzwords like customer-focused, but that is rarely true. At Marucci, they refuse to put their seal on a bat unless it is absolutely perfect. We're dependent on an organic piece of material that it's not like a metal bat where you can fabricate it. You're not fabricating a piece of wood. You're dependent on Mother Nature, so you can get in a piece of wood and it may have ingrown bark, it could have defoliation on it, it may not dry the right way, it could bend up bowing. So now you got to warp. So there's so many factors 
And that's why the company decided to buy a wood mill on an Amish farm in Pennsylvania so that they could have a stable supply source and one that they can control. At least try to. And still... If you look at the wood that comes in, probably only 13 to 14% is used for Major League Bats because of how selective we are. Their 86% rejection rate is absolutely nuts, and it's actually even worse, or Jack would say even better, given the commitment behind it. Once the approved wood gets into their process, they're able to make about 1,200 bats a day, and a big chunk of them won't make it through their quality control checks, about 300 of them. A fourth of their employees' daily work gone and wiped away. This translates into an actual rejection rate of 89.5%. And for some context on this, for how it is for most businesses, Johnsonville Sausage founder Ralph Steyer told us that he was concerned about their rejection rate of 5%. And he ended up getting it down to 0.5%. One bat maybe touched 22 to 24 sets of hands before it's out on the major league field. So it's, it's, we're just, we're obsessive on quality. Then we start developing a, an idea. Players want to become part of what we're doing. Other companies are paying players to use their stuff. We've never paid a player to use a bat. Never thought, of, why would I do that? They, they want them. Why would I? Here's a novel idea. They want to buy into us. So. We have 18, probably 18 Major League Baseball players are investing in the company. So there's a lot more people that have probably benefited than I am, even financially, which is, which is good. Jack could do that, given that he doesn't care about the money. His concern is a greater one. The clubhouse guys loved us because we weren't in there all the time, and we weren't trying to sell to everybody, you know. I've told players if they act up early on that we don't want to do bats for you. If you're embarrassed, you wouldn't believe some of the conversations. We had a player throw a bat in the minor leagues, and I told him, if we, if we do this again, we're done. We're not making you bats anymore. You know, and it, some of these guys were never told stuff like that, but I, I believe that was the right thing to do. When you're not desperate like that, it, it makes you different. But then when you become a little bit driven by it, it, it changes things. So. We became the number one bat company probably about two and a half years ago. We passed the Louisville Slugger, and uh, by a pretty large margin now. But, um, you know, you're in sport, and it is a game of inches. And if those companies made that bat one inch longer, I wouldn't have probably made bats because they would have made a bat for my son, and that would have been it. <laughs> one inch. One inch. And what a story, folks. Chase the quality, the rest will come. And my goodness, what an idea, letting the Major League Baseball players themselves own a piece of the company rather than chasing them for a darned endorsement. When we come back, more of the life story of Jack Marucci, director of LSU's athletic training, founder of Marucci Sports, here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment and series continues.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Jack Marucci, who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat maker in Major League Baseball in the matter of only a decade. As a reminder, Jack Marucci is a world-class athletic trainer. He wasn't a world-class woodmaker or really a woodmaker at all. He took an eighth grade woodshop class and that was about it. He had to buy secondhand equipment, a lathe, for $150 just to hope to fulfill his son's simple dream of playing with a wood bat. So how is it even possible that this non-woodmaker, non-baseball expert made a bat that was so good that it became the highest selling in Major League Baseball? Was it pure luck? Did he just accidentally make something that was the best? From the outside looking in, it may seem like it. How did how'd you learn wood? How did we do it? I said, well, you go to the University of Google and you can learn a lot. Then you can go to, then you get a master's at the University of YouTube. And you know, there's so many resources if you use them and, and you have connections to call people. You talk to the physicist up in Michigan who's done a lot of testing and you learn, you pick their brain. You, you learn about wood with the people who make the drumsticks with all the great rock bands and you know, there is, a, there, is, there is something to the type of wood and the way you dry it, and there is formulas, but you can learn that. You can, if you, if you wanna, the resources are there, if, if you have the passion for it, you can. If you have the willingness to. Jack was around 37 years old then, and a lot of folks at that age aren't willing to learn new things. Heck, I'm 29, and this city boy turned country boy finds it absolutely daunting to learn new things like taking care of a riding lawnmower. I, I think it's part of our nature. That's why our parents and grandparents came over to this country. They were willing to take chances. I think it's built inside of us. I think we're a little bit more adventurous maybe because of that. My mom was 11 when she came from Spain and my grandfather's from Italy. So we're half Spanish, half Italian, but, and that was the makeup of most of the people we grew up with. Everybody was pretty ethnic. And, you know, we went to the Italian church and St. Teresa's. We thought that's how it was everywhere. Notice how Jack said the Italian church, not the Catholic church. In immigrant hotbeds like Jack's Uniontown, Pennsylvania, or my ancestor's Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport, each ethnicity had its own Catholic church. No, it wasn't the cat. It was the Italian church. We went to there was the Polish church, and you had the uh, Russian Orthodox church. That's how it was. So I mean, you think uh, you know, that's all you know as a kid. But um, her dad came over to be a coal miner, and we went back to see her where she grew up. And it was like San Diego. I'm going. Why would your dad leave this place? They lived right by the ocean. But I guess times were so bad. They had a civil war. The economy was bad, and the war's breaking out. This was like in the early 40s so but her dad comes over here right before the war war ii and he's trying to save money bring the family up but he can't get back and forth so my mom didn't see him until 11 years until he could save up the money so she was 11 the first time she saw her dad <laughs> her sister and her brother came over didn't know english they put him in second grade to learn english and <laughs> worked their way up 
Then my dad's side, my grandfather came over when he was 15. Then he got deported because you had to be 16. Or you can see it on the Ellis Island report. He got to Ellis Island <laughs> and somehow he got through all that. And they said, well, you're only 15. And they deported him back. So he had to go all the way back. Then he came back when he was 16. And these aren't a couple hour flights that we're talking about here. We're talking about boat rides across the ocean and long ones. It's going to be probably a month. So he started a restaurant. So we came up kind of in the restaurant business. So my dad ended up being the butcher. My dad did the bartending. He did the managing. Him and his two sisters took over after my grandfather passed. And was built from nothing. It was just a little deli. And they built it into a place where banquets could seat up to six, seven hundred people. I mean, it's, it just kept growing. And that's when I first probably came across the first professional athletes because we used to check coats, me and my brother. We're like 10 years old, and you're checking coats, man. And they're giving you these big coats, and we'd stay up late, and we're so tired. I mean, it's like almost 1 o'clock, and we never stay up this late. Imagine making your 10-year-old today stay up until 1 a.m. to work for you. You wouldn't be able to. The labor laws would call it child abuse. That was child abuse. <laughs> we were so tired. We'd wrestle in there. We'd have coats all over the place. You know, we'd do whatever. And uh, we'd start being silly and, you know, we'd give them the coat and we'd, like, we're coughing and go, how about a buck? You know, we'd do something like that. How about a buck? You know, and <laughs> so... So, I mean, we would just do all these goofy things, but you could make, if it's a hundred coats, you're making a hundred bucks. You know, you split it, that's 50 bucks each. Not bad for a 10-year-old. Joe Paterno would come in or, you know, for a banquet he was speaking. So we were a sports-oriented family. Again, from the area where we grew up, a lot of people know the history of even just quarterbacks from there. Within a 50-mile radius of the city of Pittsburgh, they've had 36 NFL quarterbacks, including Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Joe Namath, Jim Kelly, and Johnny Unitas, leading it to be called the cradle of quarterbacks. And by the way, in basketball, Pistol Pete Maravich is from there too. The name Maravich is a very ethnic Croatian. But you know, I think then, and, and if you look at it from that culture, that's why you had a lot of Italian boxers. That's why you had a lot of Irish. You know, they were immigrants that came over here just trying to do anything to get out of poverty. So they learned to fight, they learned to start a restaurant. So they were very innovative, and I think that we were very fortunate to grow up in that type of culture. But when you're when you're growing up, you don't you have no idea. You're just living and breathing it not knowing that life's not like that for a lot of folks and that this immigrant mentality is a gift. So, so we're going to Bamante's in New York. It's the oldest, I think it's, it's in the top 10 oldest restaurants in the New York metropolitan area. It's in Brooklyn. This restaurant was the one where they did the TV show, The Sopranos, they filmed a lot in there. So I get in there, it's not a big place. And I'm sitting there, and all these people start coming in. Bobby Valentine comes in. There comes Tommy Lasoria comes walking in. And then Joe Episcopo comes walking in. 
And Leonardo DiCaprio comes along. I'm sitting next to the guy. We're, we're laughing. We're going to wake up tomorrow. Go, this, this really happens. These people just start marching. All these Italians. Jack Bruce. Yeah, then here's here I am. Yeah, here I am from Uniontown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> And my goodness, if you didn't like Jack Marucci's story in those first two segments, my goodness, the flavor just keeps getting added into the mix. Of course, he's down in Cajun country now, but he was a, a Pittsburgh boy, which means football, football, football. But it wasn't just that, folks. That early work experience as a young man, we hear this again and again in our successful entrepreneur stories, work young. Child labor laws would have probably prevented Jack from getting some of the seminal experiences he needed that formed his character, formed his nature. And he was having fun. Yeah, he was up late, but 50 bucks he split. 50 bucks for a night as a 10-year-old. That'll get you working. And, of course, that immigrant story. We love the immigrant story here in this country. And remember, he didn't call it a Catholic church. He called it an Italian church. And I know because I went to an Italian church, the Sicilian part of my family. It was not a Catholic church. And that's why I was smiling. And you are, too. Jack Marucci's story. What a classic American story. YouTube in his way. self all the way into becoming America's premier bat maker. His story here on Our American Stories continues after these messages. American stories and now the final portion of this remarkable American dreamers stories on Jack Marucci who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball. Let's pick up where we last left off. On Marucci Sports' website there's video testimonies from MLB players including Albert Pujols and Andrew McCutcheon. And even though their videos are supposed to be about baseball, how they honor the game and their Marucci bats, both of those guys started talking about their faith. Here's Pujols on hitting his 600th home run. First of all, I need to thank God for giving me the, the opportunity and the ability to be able to do that. That's who I give all the glory and all the credit. And here's McCutcheon with just a ton of kids at the annual baseball camp he hosts in his hometown of Fort Meade, Florida. I'd like to thank all y'all for coming, all right? Anybody heard the Lord's Prayer? All right? Before every game, when I go out, I like to go out in the middle of center field, and I like to say a little prayer. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Powerful stuff and stuff that Jack's company keeps in the videos. Most of the media takes these uncool parts out, taking out of their stories what they say is the central force in their lives. It's important to who they are. It's important that people should hear that. That it don't be ashamed of it. I think people are coming more ashamed of it. They don't talk about it. So 
that's one of those things I think it's gotten slanted a little bit. So I think faith is, it's funny how when hard times come, people, they want faith, they want religion, you know. You should be, when good things, how about thanking it, you know, that, that side of it. Let's not, it's not always one side of it, but it's funny how people evolve back to that. Why is that? Well, there's something pulling you there. Faith is part of hope. And once you take hope away from people, it's not a good thing. You always, you know, when I talk to athletes, if they're injured, you always have that hope. Faith is the same lines. So faith gives people that hope, gives them comfort. We think that's very important to have that message because that's who they are. It's the right thing to do. And it's important to these people's lives. Paul says that, that, that is, he's strong with that. that that's, that's real now. It's not just saying it. He lives it. Coach Bowden lived it. Coach Bowden didn't cuss. He lived that life. And Jack doesn't cuss either. Even though this Italian Catholic comes from the perfect background for it. Believe it or not, I don't. I never smoked. I don't drink. And we grew up in a, you know, restaurant, and I, and I have nothing against it, but I don't know. I just, I just never never have and I'm in an environment where cussing is very uh, <laughs> prominent. We had a coach one time. He came over. I'm not going to mention his name. I talked to him. He came in and goes, you know, I speak two different languages. He goes, I speak English and profanity. <laughs> and he did. I think profanity might have been his uh, dominant uh, language. But, um, uh, and I have not, again, there's, there's not, we're in an environment of it, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you have to do that. If you go to church on, on a weekend, you should, it, it's a time to be thankful. <laughs> it's the only time where you really can sit down and, you know, we're so busy. And we try to say our prayers at night, but a lot of times, you know, we'll fall asleep or we're, we're exhausted or we, we do. We don't. But that's a time where you're, you're captured and just be thankful for what you have instead of going over all the negative stuff. But that's self-talk. That's a whole other topic and what we try to do. And, you know, how the mind can overpower you. So, but that's where faith and religion can give you a little more clarity if, you, if you're invested in it. I've seen people change because of that. We have a player and his name Cecil Collins. Cecil Collins was probably the best running back we ever had here. He only played three games and three and a half games. That's it. And yet Jack is insisting that he's still the best they've ever had. You can look at the YouTube stuff. He had a little, he struggled as a young player. He got in trouble. Unjustified, he was in prison for about 18 years. 18 years, he just got out a couple years ago. I reconnected, been trying to help him with some things, invite him to the bowl game. If, if, if religion didn't change his life, then it hadn't changed anybody's. He doesn't cuss anymore. He, he is a true testament. And he almost died in prison. He was eating, um, it was like chicken and rice. There was a bone that cut him. He was internally bleeding. And they weren't going to take him to the dog. He finally got there. The surgeon saved his life. He was 150 pounds. And this guy, his personality, he is a unbelievable. He's a gem. He's got a family. He's, he's, he's becoming an electrician. Just a productive, this guy has a future. In just the way that Jack says, this guy has a future. You can hear how proud Jack is of him. And yet, that's not how a lot of mainstream culture would look at him. He's the best running back that LSU's ever had. Could have made tens of millions of dollars in the NFL. 
but now he's an electrician and you're saying that he's a gem and has a future? It says a lot about who Jack Marucci is and integrity that other people can't help but to respond to. When we were together, Jack pulled out his phone and played for me a voicemail that someone left for him the other day. He didn't do it to brag. He was just so tickled by it. I'm so happy for you. and I don't know you. I'm proud of you. I love what you do and how you do it. Love the story of your company. I wanted to let you know that John Brubrick has shared it with my entire Major League staff here in spring training. We're listening to Clint Hurdle, the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there were only a few of us that knew the story going in, so for about 50 guys, it was the first time they heard. Basically, a dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into, um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then, so professionally. So if I can ever be of service to you, please let, let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, then I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So it's all good by me. Let me know if I can be a service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. Uh, buy you dinner or something. Okay? Over and out, buddy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That phone call also says a lot about Clint Hurdle. To be operating at the highest level of your profession as he is, and to make the time to call someone, someone you don't know, just to tell them how impressed you are by them and how they've lived their life. Think we could do that more in our lives? I know that I can. For our American stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And what a story. I think that may be my favorite right up there with Ralph Lauren and Bernie Marcus. And our American Dreamer stories can be found at ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a bunch. And my goodness, great work as always to Alex Cortez. Our great crew here goes all over this country to find these great stories. And the redeeming virtue and feature of our stories is that we love to shine the light on the good. And unlike most media enterprises who shine light on the ugly and the train wreck, we love light and we love real hope and darkness. Well, turn to another channel if that's what you're looking for. And our American Dreamer series is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network works hard to fight for public policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And by the way, the founder of Job Creators Network is a hero of mine, Bernie Marcus, who at 49 years old found himself out of work. He and two partners, Ken Langone and Arthur Blank, started a little company you all know now, and it's called Home Depot. And those three men built this great enterprise and then have spent their later years giving a lot of their money away and showing the virtue and generosity uh, that capitalism can bequeath. And I want to add also that you can get all of Our American Dreamer series stories over at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And so I want to leave this story playing the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates, 
message, his message that was on Jack Marucci's phone because it's worth hearing again. And don't we all wish that a message like this would be left on our phone by a complete stranger and that our life's work, what we do in our lives, our integrity and our character can leave this imprint and can make this kind of difference. Integrity and character, we talk about it a lot here on this show. Let's leave with Clint Hurdle. This is Our American Stories. Basically, Dad made a bat for a boy that he loved, and it's turned into what it's turned into um, because it was just about unconditional love, and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then, so professionally. So if I can ever be of service to you, please let, let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker's a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be of service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we could send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. 